Hey, missionaries, it's Michael Schweisheimer. Before we start the Mission Story Slam podcast, I wanted to tell you some exciting news. We've partnered with Habitat for Humanity Philadelphia for the next Mission Story Slam, which is going to be held on April 14th at the Restore, which is Habitat for Humanity's discount home improvement store on Washington Avenue in South Philadelphia. This time, our theme is where the heart is. Tickets are on sale now. Just look for the link at missionstoryslam.org. We're also very happy to announce another Mission Story Salon. That's our version of a Jeffersonian dinner, which is an evening of great food, great company, and fascinating conversation with our special guest, David Thornburg, president of the Committee of 70, Philadelphia's nonpartisan civic leadership organization. David has selected the theme of growth and governance. This time, the salon will be held at Chiodi Indian Bistro in Brewery Town on Sunday, March 22nd. There are only 10 tickets available, so I suggest you get them quickly. Details and ticket info are available at missionstoryslam.org and also on the Mission Story Slam Facebook page. Since I recorded this interview with Anuj Gupta, he has announced that at the end of April, he'll be leaving his position as the manager of the Reading Terminal Market to become chief of staff for Congressman Dwight Evans. I saw Anuj on the night that he made this announcement public as we were discussing his hosting our upcoming salon dinner. The combination of sadness at ending his amazing time at the market was definitely tempered by his excitement for this next chapter. Anuj is a dedicated public servant, whether helming a nonprofit or in a government position. I know he's made the market better and that he will continue making an impact in Philadelphia and Washington as part of Representative Evans' team. Here's my interview with Anuj Gupta. Uh, you good? All right. Here we go. <clears throat> Speed. Three, two, one. Welcome back to the Mission Story Slam podcast, brought to you by PWP Video. I'm Michael Schweisheimer, the executive producer at PWP Video and Mission Story Slam. We started Mission Story Slam to share the stories of the organizations that we serve at PWP Video. Those include nonprofits, B corporations, triple bottom line companies, and sustainable organizations. People who are on a mission to make the world a better place. Twice a year, we gather at Yards Brewing in Philadelphia and pick the names of 10 storytellers out of a hat, and they compete for a $250 donation to their favorite nonprofit. The crowd also selects a favorite story for a $100 donation. We videotape their stories for sharing on social media and with friends and supporters. So this podcast is about the story behind those stories, what motivates someone to tell a story in front of an audience, and how did they choose the story they were going to tell? What was that experience like? We also get to learn a lot about the storytellers themselves. So today's guest is a founding missionary. Not only was he a judge at the first Mission Story Slam, but he was so inspired, he insisted on sharing a story that night. <laughs> and he came back and joined us again at Mission Story Slam 2, Saving Democracy. The son of immigrants himself, Anuj Gupta, started his career in big law, where he put in a lot of pro bono hours helping immigrants. He moved into public service with the city of Philadelphia and everyone's favorite department, L&I. <laughs> I wasn't kidding. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) So after a successful stint as the executive director of the Mount Airy CDC, Anuj is now the general manager of the Reading Terminal Market. This summer, Anuj was named a Public Spaces Fellow by the Knight Foundation, in large part for his work on their Breaking Bread, Breaking Barrier series. And that series provided the setting for Anuj's story for saving democracy. So Anuj, welcome to the Mission Story Slam podcast. Thanks, Sparkle. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate your coming out. So... Do you remember um, you were kind of you were kind of pissed at that first story slam that as a judge you weren't supposed to tell a story, 
And I think Dave Winston was going to tell the final story, but he he was he could tell you were so wound up to tell that he gave his spot up to you. Well, it was I, I really enjoyed the evening. I, I frankly didn't know what to expect. It was the first one, so I'm not sure that anyone knew what to expect. And it was a wonderful night. There were great stories that were told, and I, I one of my few natural talents. One, and by that I mean it's one that I didn't really have to work at. Um, is talking, and <laughs> I know the, the feeling. Then, the, yes, the gift of gab. Uh, I've always uh, relished the opportunity to get up in front of people, and whether it's uh, speak informally or give a formal speech, it's just been something that that I enjoy. And so, when there's an opportunity to do so, I usually jump at it. It's the the uh, reverse of a lot of folks who don't uh, right. uh, enjoy public speaking. Fear, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so once I understood what the format was and hearing all the great stories I did that night, I said, "Well, I have a story to share." Uh, so I want to see how how it resonates. Actually, just to tease you a little bit, I think you, besides being the only person to be a judge and storyteller in the same night, you also got the record for the most bells <laughs> when you did your second oh, story. Oh no, really? Because I kept going. It was a great story, but you had, it was a long story, and then it had a prologue after. No wonder I didn't win. Got dinged on the bells. Uh, I don't think that affects the judge. Well, you know better what the judges are thinking. Yeah, about. Right, sitting, right. You've right. sat in that chair. Right. I, have, I have been lucky enough not to. But you know what? I love the story about the former client. Um, but let's listen to a little bit of the story that you told at Saving Democracy. Yeah. Good evening. So, saving democracy, that's a pretty heavy lift. It's not one I imagined I'd ever even have to think about. But here we are in 2018. And when you think about what that means, at its basic sense, you could say it's preserving the rule of law. It's ensuring people have the right to vote. But I think democracy has a more fundamental basis. Democracy entails, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, the art of compromise. And in order to compromise, we have to be able to talk to one another, no matter how different we may be in our perspective. Now, in a time when all the headlines suggest we have lost that ability, the chasms between us are too wide, you could subscribe to that and conclude democracy is now broken. Tonight, I want to tell you about a project we did at the Reading Terminal Market, where I work every day, that I believe set a template to prove otherwise, that it is possible to still preserve those fundamental tenets of democracy. So the Reading Terminal Market, you all know it. It's a wonderful place to come, shop, and eat, spend time with your families. But in the early 1990s, when the decision was made to save the market from the demolition block, it was recreated with a broad charter, a social mission, of course, to be a, a place for fresh food, but also to become the melting pot of Philadelphia. The mission statement explicitly provides it is intended to be a place that embraces and f the diversity of our city and fosters interaction amongst those diverse residents. You could argue it's been successful in that mission, in fact, it's been so successful 
that in 2012, a sociologist by the name of Elijah Anderson wrote a chapter about the Reading Terminal, and he coined a nickname for it in a book that he wrote called The Cosmopolitan Canopy, because he observed a place where everyday strangers across race, across ethnicity, across income lines, geography, whatever barrier you want to imagine, were coming together and interacting in a way that he hadn't seen in other public spaces. So in 2015, as the newly minted general manager of the Reading Terminal, I had two goals. One was to simply execute our organization's mission. But two, <clears throat> amidst a city that is diversifying at a pace that we haven't seen in nearly 100 years, driven by immigrants from all over the world, Asia, Latin America, Africa, I wanted to make sure that the newest Philadelphians feel a connection to the Reading Terminal in a way that generations of Philadelphians have done and that they see it as their public space, whether they spend every day there or just one day a year. It is their market just as much as anyone else's. And knowing about Dr. Anderson's research and observations, the power of food to act as one of our last remaining common denominators, I wanted to see if we could bring our city one step closer. So to that end, with the support of the Knight Foundation and our project partners, the University of Penn, Pennsylvania's Project for Civic Engagement, hello Linda, uh, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, and the City of Philadelphia's Human Relations Commission, we launched a project called Breaking Bread, Breaking Barriers. The pro premise of this project was simple. Working with our project partners, we identified immigrant communities across the city who either did not know one another, didn't know the neighbors they were residing next to, or had some measure of conflict with each other. And we asked them to come to the market to engage in a shared cuisine exchange whereby they would learn to cook one another's cuisine. Because let's be honest, our cuisines are far more than just the basic ingredients that are included in them. They represent our values, our history, our stories, they represent our cultures almost better than anything else I can think of. Now, these were not ordinary cooking demonstrations where you learn it's a tablespoon of this and a cup of that and you baste the meat for 45 minutes. No, these demonstrations where they were cooking one another's cuisine were intended to communicate those stories and what was important to one another's communities so that they walked out of that demonstration and then sat down and had dinner together with the dinner, dinner dialogue facilitated by the Human Relations Commission with the intention that they have fundamental understanding of one another's communities. And then they, each of these pairings were asked to come back to the market. At that point, they had to decide outside of our four walls what recipes they thought were important to one another and what do they want to share with their new friends. So over the course of 18 months, we brought together communities as diverse as Korean Americans and African Americans living around the 52nd Street Corridor. We brought together West African refugees and their neighbors in Southwest Philadelphia. Cambodian Americans and residents of South Philadelphia. The Mummers, Chinese, and Mexican communities for one dinner. And in what proved to be one of the more impactful pairings, See, this project was planned in 2016. After November of 2016, its relevance 
and its importance rose to another level. And so that the most powerful evening that we had in the course of this project was the night we invited the newest Philadelphians, Syrian refugees, men and women who had fled years of war and trauma, living in refugee camps, living in whatever country would bring them in, ultimately finding their way to the United States. We invited them to come dine with their new neighbors, residents of Northeast Philadelphia, just to get to know them. Now, it just so happened that that dinner took place on an early February night, 2017, two days after Donald Trump announced the first iteration of the Muslim travel ban. So you have these men and women with children in tow, not knowing if they will ever see their parents, their siblings, their aunts, their uncles, maybe other children that have been left behind. There is an incredible sense of emotion that night. So the project concluded with all of the groups that we invited coming to Filbert Street, it's the main public street in front of the market, for one long communal dinner. Over 200 people representing 12 different communities, 12 different cuisines, Philadelphia at its best. Now I can't say that at the end of the project we saved democracy. But I do know the night that West African refugees and their African-American neighbors concluded that they have tremendous commonalities in the way that their cuisines evolved, though an ocean apart. I think we added a block back to our democracy. The night that the mummers invited myself and my two brown-skinned children, named Leela and Renjith, to be amongst the marshals of this year's parade. I think we added a block back to our democracy. And back to that night with the Syrian refugees. When the guests entered the room that night, there was an elderly woman. She came in. She was reserved. Frankly, she looked a little sad. And as she sat for the dinner, she was quiet the entire evening. I'm wrapping up. <laughs> this, is the, this is the climax. At the end of the night, she stands up. Really hadn't said a word the entire dinner. And with the help of an interpreter, she says, I thought this evening was just going to be about food. It turns out it was about unity. I think we added a block back to our democracy. So, so since that time, you were named a Public Spaces Fellow by mm -hmm. the Knight Foundation. And I'm curious um, how that fellowship ties back to your story about breaking bread, breaking barriers. Sure. The fellowship is, uh, first of all, it's a real privilege uh, uh, and to receive it. Um, and big it, congratulations. Oh, thank you. That's really great. It is, it, it's, a, it's an opportunity to f frankly do whatever I want in the public sphere towards catalyzing public space integration, development, so on and so forth. I have no parameters whatsoever on the grant. That's I can experiment with whatever I want, which is really amazing. And daunting. So I, I don't, it is daunting because it's been, I've, I've now had it sort of, I've, I've known about it for almost six months and I'm still trying to decide how to use it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but the, so it, it is not, it's not a requirement that I use it for another iteration of Breaking Bread. Okay. Um, 
but in all likelihood I will, and I'll, I'll talk about what I have in mind in a moment. In the middle of all that, unrelated, we are actually in round two of uh, of the Breaking Bread project. Uh, oh, okay. And we're actually doing it in, in our backyard in Germantown. Oh. So where the, in, where in Germantown? Uh, Vernon Park. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Okay. So after Breaking Bread 1 ended, and that's the one that I talked about at, at Story Slam, uh, the Parks and Rec Commissioner came to me and she said, I have a vision. I want to do something in our parks akin to the Heineken commercial. And what she's referencing is this commercial that filmed during the Super Bowl or aired during the Super Bowl, I, I believe, of 2017, right after the election, where a uh, it depicts a Muslim woman. She seems somewhat lonely. She's living in a, a kind of multi-cultured apartment complex. It's not clear where. Maybe it's Germany. Okay. Uh, she walks out. She's very lonely there, doesn't seem to know anyone. So she decides one day she's going to go out in her hallway, set up a table, and put a couple of dishes down that she makes and see if her neighbors come out to dine with her. And the, the, uh, the ad goes on such that, all the other neighbors of different cultures and backgrounds start coming out with their own potluck yes. dishes yeah. and it forms one big long table in the apartment hallway. And of course they're all drinking Heineken. So <laughs> but the, the, the comedy aside of, of the ad, uh, there was, there was a real nugget there that Catherine Lott Oval, who's one of my fellow, um, public, uh, pu- public space fellows. Yes. My fellow fellow. Uh, oh, yeah. I like she wanted to try and create some dynamic similar to that in the city's parks. And I think this is her theory, which I absolutely subscribe to. Our parks, our libraries, our rec centers arguably should be the most integrated democratic spaces you find anywhere in the city. Yeah. Now, I think – on any given day, the Reading Terminal Market probably plays that role, and I'm not saying that facetiously or, or with bias. I, I truly believe that to be the case. Um, there are very few barriers that separate folks at the market. That's what Elijah Anderson wrote about, and that's what the Breaking Bread Project is premised on. Uh, what The dynamic that is often found in parks is you will have three or four different communities that reside around any particular asset. Okay. And for whatever reason, maybe it's historical, maybe it's uh, uh, geographic, maybe it's race, maybe it's ethnicity. You might find that only one or two of those communities are actively involved in the park. As users, as programmers, as advocates, the park should be servicing everybody that can utilize it. Right. So... The thought was, could we take the breaking bread model that we had established and use it as a way to build and better integrate the the friends groups that serve as the advocacy arms of these parks? Uh, because of that, that dynamic I described, the friends group would often just be populated by one or two communities and not truly reflective of, of the broader the constituency that should be using the park. So we said, yeah, we, we, we think we're on to something as a template here. And after about a year of planning with many of the same partners, uh, the University of Pennsylvania is involved, the Human Relations Commission is involved, um, 
excuse me, we have some new new partners now, Vet Vetri Community Partnership. Oh, nice. And the Fairmount Park Conservancy. We are now doing Breaking Bread dinners in five uh, city parks with active involvement from the friends groups. The purpose of these dinners is to do exactly as I described, use it as a forum to get people both in the friends group and who are not involved in the friends group to understand how much they have in common. There's less that divides them uh, than they think. And once they've established that relationship, hopefully get them working together towards the betterment of the park. So we're doing this right now in four parks. Uh, Vernon Park in Germantown is one. FDR Park in South Philly is the second. Uh, Norris Square kind of in in the Kensington neighborhood is the third. That makes sense. And the fourth is Bartram's Garden in Southwest Philly. And then we're still working on a potential site in uh, the Northeast, but that has yet to be determined. So this is, it's been a wonderful iteration of, of the Breaking Bread template. I think, I mean, look, we haven't solved all the city's problems with this. I, I fully acknowledge that at, even at the end of the second round of this project, we will still have uh, the highest poverty rate of any city in America. We have one too many homicides in the city uh, with a rate that's climbing right now. Yeah. One out of every three children still do not graduate from the school system. But what I say, and I, I believe this is the impact of, of this project. All If you subscribe to everything that you read and see and hear, the headlines, the news, the, the TV news, uh, the radio news, you would lend, lead yourself to believe we are so divided now as a society, whether it's within our city or between city and suburb or state to state or just red and blue America, that we have lost the ability to talk to one another. We have lost the ability to find some, some measure of shared humanity. And what I believe we have accomplished with this project is proving otherwise, that if you give people of differing backgrounds the opportunity to sit down with one another and they're willing to participate, right? Right. Well, I would hope so. If you give them that forum and the structure, they will discover what I just described. And we have brought together some really diverse sort of uh, eyebrow-raising combinations of communities, and not necessarily in the second round because they're all geographically located, but in the first round, one of our uh, dinner pairings was the Mummers, uh, Chinese communities, and the Mexican community. Why did we do that? Because in the Mummers parade of, I don't know if it was 2016 or 17, right. there was some acrimony about some of the acts that, that marched uh, in, in that year's parade. And I'm telling you, that was one of the most fulfilling uh, series of dinners that I've participated in this project. I mean, for, for the mummers, and I, I grew up in the Philadelphia area, I have, I, I, admittedly, I had stereotypes in my head of who could or should be a mummer. Okay. Right? Certainly was not me uh, or my brown skinned children named Leela and Renjith. And when the mummers, through, as, as an outcome of that dinner, asked, the three of us, myself and my kids, to come march with them in their parade, not as a joke, as a serious invitation. 
to me, that was a sign of progress. Uh, that was something really meaningful. When they asked members of the Chinatown community to come and do the same, and folks in the Chinatown community asked them to participate in the dragon boat race, that to me That's was cool. a, a sign of some progress. So these are, these are small kernels of victory. But again, in, in the context of the larger dialogue or lack thereof, they're important ones. That was a really long answer to your question. You, you started this discussion by mentioning you, you've always had the Sorry. gift of the gap. You know what? Um, that's the point of breaking bread, right? That's the point of these conversations is that they, it's not just sitting down at a table and having a meal. It's about the connections that you're trying to have people make. Yeah. It's about, you know, building some real bridges there. Yes. It's not, it's not about and, the food at the end of the day. It's you. It's leveraging the food and using that as what I call common denominator. Every community has food as sort of a, a representation of their culture or community right. in one respect or another. So if, if we can use that as a tool to build this sense of commonality, then maybe we can lay the foundation for deeper understanding. Do you... With with your ability to explain about food and how that goes across barriers, do you find yourself having to explain Reading Terminal Market as you see it to people, either within Philly or from outside of Philadelphia? And, and how do you do it? I think if you're from Philly and you've been to the market and you've experienced it to in, to some extent, you understand when I when I describe it in the way that I do, I see heads nod. So it's an easy story to sort of recount for folks. When I describe it to people from out of town who, if they know of it, they only know of it as this famous retail place with a bunch of... Right, place uh, to go get a great, great exactly. sandwiches and cookies, yeah. They have no appreciation or understanding of the, the larger social and civic role that we play in, in the city. Um, and, and they often walk away with... Uh, they're shaking their head because they had no idea that the market was such a place and that it's intentional. Uh, when it's intentional, well, I'm sorry, it's intentional that it's the, the type of place that it is. Yes. Okay. Yeah. When, when this version of the market was created in the early 1990s, uh, a mission statement was drafted just as it would be for any nonprofit organization. And it's a multi-pronged mission statement. One component of it is I'm not going to quote the words exactly, but it is to the effect of to serve as a institution that embraces the diversity of our city and catalyzes its its interaction between diverse citizens. Okay. That sounds like it's probably pretty close, by the way. Pretty close, yeah. <laughs> but what that's really that's really forward thinking in this is like nineteen ninety one, ninety two. Like that is uh that is crazy that that and that language is stood. I gather it that, it has makes sense. yeah yeah um, and that is what it is. I mean, we serve that purpose. Do you to explain how that happens? Do you do you use stories in those explanations to to help people understand it, or do you kind of just explain it? And I, I explain it? it, and people are are particularly from outside of the region. They're more interested in knowing well. How do you get to that point? And right. there's some fundamental aspects of our structure as an institution 
there's fundamentals of, of our financial structure that are key to allowing this to to happen. Uh, and so I usually explain those. Well, you know, I'd like to play the prologue from your Saving Democracy story about Amina. Yeah. Um, so let's listen to that. And just as a prologue, if I can, don't ring the bell. One of the women that attended that dinner from the Syrian community came to us a few days later. She was desperately in need of a job. Her husband is now blind in one eye. The building that they lived in in Aleppo was hit by an explosion. And he's unable to work. She needed work in America. And so we put her to work on our maintenance team. That's the only thing we could offer. Well, six, seven months go by, and she's working very, very hard, incredible work ethic. And I go to her and I say, look, I can give you a full-time job doing this. You'll have health care, you'll have paid vacation, you'll have a 401k. And she said, I don't want that. What I really want is I want to open my own business here. What, what do I need to do to make something at my house and sell it here at the Reading Terminal Market? I said, well, you can't really do that. You have to make something in a license-approved kitchen, so on and so forth. Well, long story short, through the through the help of three other nonprofits, the Welcoming Center for New Pennsylvanians, the Enterprise Center in West Philadelphia, and the Women's Opportunity Resource Center, Amina opened her stand at the Reading Terminal Market this past Thursday afternoon, Amina's Foods, where she's selling hummus, rice pudding, and her traditional Syrian pickled vegetables. That, my friend, is what makes America great. That is saving democracy. So is Amina still going strong? She is. I must have, if that was three days after she opened, we must have done that story slam in October 2018? Yes. Okay. That is correct. So the following January, three months later, she quit our housekeeping team altogether, our maintenance. That's how she came to the market. Right. And she started opening the store five days a week. This summer, she actually expanded so now she is uh, also opening on the weekends at the Cherry Street Pier through the Food Trust Farmers oh, wow. Market that they open there. So during the weekends, she now has two stores up and running. And she is still the rest of the week at the market. My goodness. Is she taking any time off at all? She does. She has to take at least two days a week for production. Okay. Uh, because she makes it all herself as well. So she makes it all herself. She sells it all. The kids have gotten involved in the business during the summer. They were at the stand a lot. Uh, now they're back in school, so they, they often come after school. And I, these kids are amazing. Every time I want, to, I want to yell at one of my kids for something silly that they're complaining about, I, I, I literally say to them, you need to go talk to Amina's kids. They've come to know Amina pretty well. Okay. These... <laughs> she left Syria and fled a war zone with four kids who at the time, her daughter, her oldest daughter right now is 16 or 17. So she at best was maybe 10 or 11 at that time. All right. And the rest of the kids are or younger, younger, than, younger that, than that. Yeah. Right. So she, <laughs> first of all, just getting out of the house with four kids is... A nightmare. I can, I can barely do it. I can barely do it with two kids on a day-to-day basis. Get them to school on time. So she and her husband get them to Turkey, and her husband's already been injured uh, as a result of the war. They spend five years in Turkey. 
the the Syrian refugee children are not allowed to attend school there. Oh, really? Yes. So they are out of a formal schooling system uh, for for that Five period years, of yeah. time. Her daughter now, the, this is the oldest, and they're all rock stars, these kids, but I'll, I'll just talk about her daughter for a moment. She is president of the student body, not just of her class, but president of the student body at Fells High here in, in Philly. She speaks five languages, and she is applying to Temple. Wow. That's amazing. Awesome. That is amazing. That is awesome. Um, have you have you done other work with um, with other immigrants or other immigrant communities to help them set up businesses within Reading Terminal Market? Yes. Um, one of my goals has been, and I said this from the beginning, if I'm holding this market up as Philadelphia's market, and I want locals to come here mm-hmm. and continue coming here, then it should be reflective of our city. And our city has been diversifying at a, a very fast pace uh, as it, at a rate we haven't seen in nearly a century, mostly driven by immigration from Asia and Central and South America. And so we have taken very intentional steps towards that goal. I brought in the first two Latino-owned uh, businesses in the market's history wow. should not have taken that long. No. Uh, but in in the summer of 2018, we introduced a Puerto Rican street food concept. We have a, a very large, important Puerto Rican community in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some great Puerto Rican cuisine. For yeah, the most part, very hard to find in Center City. So if you want that cuisine, you have to come to the Reading Terminal to get it. Two months after that, we uh, brought in a Argentinian family. Uh, they opened the first vegan deli in the in the city. It's not Argentinian. That is fare. not what I was expecting you no, to say. No, okay. they have a they have a great story. I can go into that if if you want. But so we brought them in. We uh, we have brought in uh, the first um, uh, Caribbean concept. It's uh, Jamaican. Uh, we have brought in the first Muslim-owned businesses in uh, in the market's history. So there's several of examples of efforts to uh, bring in new communities and have food and product representative of the the great diversity we have in the city. I'm curious for you if if the Amina story and these other immigrant uh, businesses that you've been bringing in do those connect? In your mind, to your own family's immigrant story and, and the fact that you're from a family with a food business as well? There, there's no question that my care for this issue, and I've, I've worked on promoting immigration as a policy and on behalf of individuals and families, whether it was the, the client I represented at, from Hyas or, or other folks that were serving at the market, or even at Mount Airy USA, where we created a business incubator for immigrant-owned businesses. Um, my, my drive towards that is in part policy, okay? Mm-hmm. Any large city in America that is thriving right now, it is thriving because of immigrants. And by the way, that's always been the case, right? Yeah. Where, I mean, how were our cities built? They were built by immigrants. That is the American story. Yes. There is no other side of the American story. Everyone that came here besides Native Americans were immigrants. So it's, it's always been... Uh, the story of America, and somehow we seem to l- lose sight of that when we're 
talking about immigrants as as others. So if you, if you just look at sort of good urban policy, you realize the need to be a welcoming city and one that is uh, thriving with new immigrants coming in. But I have seen, I've grown up with the immigrant experience. I've seen what my parents and all of my other family members that they sponsored, right? Not to make this a political podcast, but what people might refer to as chain migration, okay. right? That, I mean, you can quantify the economic impact that that chain migration from my family has had here in the United States. Uh, it, and it's pretty dramatic. I would think so. So, so yeah, absolutely. It is uh, my my push on this uh, issue is absolutely influenced by uh, where I, how I was raised, the family I was raised in. Do you think that you know talking about storytelling and the stories that you share and the things that you're doing? Are we hearing enough immigrant stories like Amina's these days? Because I feel like when I hear that story or I hear you talk about her eldest daughter, like that to me immediately breaks through or should break through some of the noise and the polarization and the climate around immigrants just by having those stories. One would think Republican or Democrat, red or blue, conservative, liberal. I think when you hear a story of somebody that is simply looking for opportunity and they grasp it when they get it, Mm -hmm. which is the story of most immigrants, it's hard for anyone, I think, in, in this country to, uh, to frown upon that. But, right. but the, that's not, unfortunately, the, that is not the discussion. The discussion is a very binary one. Uh, it is, in one corner, painting immigrants as others, invaders, outsiders. They're a nuisance. They're on the public dime on the public dole yeah. when they get here, right? And on the other side, it is, uh, well, if you don't, if you are not a welcoming country, then you're anti the Constitution, you're anti freedom, so on and so forth. When a complex policy issue like immigration boils down to that, it's not going to go anywhere. I hope you will come back to Mission Story Slam and keep telling us stories Hopefully they involve immigrants. I have yeah. a feeling with you they might. Yeah. Um, but I do feel like it really does help break through a lot of the the noise or the polarization by humanizing such a complicated yes. issue. Yes. That is it for today's podcast. So like all podcasts, we do benefit from reviews and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues who we think would enjoy the things that we're doing at Mission Story Slam. Please do follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and don't forget to share. And today's episode is being mixed by our intern, James Robinson. And we're sitting here at Indy Hall, where we're part of the Podcasting Junto. Mission Story Slam podcast is produced by Dave Winston and brought to you by PWP Video. We are video with a mission. Find us at pwpvideo.com. So we'll be back in a month with another episode. But until then, I'm Michael Schweisheimer, and I look forward to sharing the next story behind the story with you soon. Before we go, don't forget our Mission Story Salon with David Thornburg of Committee of 70 on March 22nd and our next Mission Story Slam with Habitat for Humanity Philadelphia on April 14th. Details and ticket info are available at missionstoryslam.org or on our Facebook page.